0: Hi, my name's India. This is Be More Orca, Buck the Menopause. Now, I'm not a medic, or an expert, or a celebrity. I'm just going through it myself. I was totally blindsided by my symptoms. I knew nothing about this stage of my life. And then I discovered neither did any of my friends. So, I'm on a mission to find out everything I can, explore every avenue to help us manage our symptoms and get our lives back on track. As we navigate this time of our lives, it becomes clear that looking after ourselves is more and more important. What we eat is vital and can even help with our symptoms. So I'm talking to menopause nutritionist Karen Newby to find out what we need to know. Hi, Karen. Thanks so much for coming and talking to me today. Lovely to be here, India. Thanks for inviting me. Now, last year, you published your wonderful book, The Natural Menopause Method, A Nutritional Guide to Perimenopause and Beyond. And what I love about it is... You're incredibly inclusive and non judgmental. And actually, all the things that you say are eminently achievable, which is essential, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I'm very much a a realist. And that's why there aren't any sort of crazy restrictions in there or things that, like you say, aren't attainable, because we're overwhelmed and we're very stressed and we have very limited bandwidth. So I wanted it to be something that everyone can dip in and out of. And the smallest of shifts, I'm a big believer, can make the biggest difference.
0: Well, that's what I wanted to talk to you about. And you are, I have to say, you're living proof, because most people I talk to who want to help women during this menopausal stage of their lives, it's been born out of a hideous personal experience of their own menopause. And that was absolutely the case for me. But you're living proof that diet and nutrition are more important now than ever. And it can allow us to have a much better time. I think a lot of it is about being
1: prepared, mm-hmm. which I think now the conversation about perimenopause, I think women now understand what that is and that they're in perimenopause. Whereas I, because I have worked in women's health for the last 10 years, I'm kind of very fine-tuned, if you like, to my own natural rhythm, but also those of my clients as well. And I can see the signs, spot the signs and symptoms before they become, you know, manifest into much greater things. Although, you know, everyone's journey is individual, but I am, yeah, I'm a believer that good food, therapeutic food, often eating more, potentially some supplements
0: and lifestyle shifts help not only this transition, but future-proof our body. Exactly. Now, you touched briefly on there, and I want to really delve into your idea of these four shifts. So not seismic changes in people's lives, just little micro changes that have a massive impact. So can you talk us through your four shifts, what they are.
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, it is a nutritional guide, but actually a lot of what I'm talking about isn't about food. It's about life load and systems changes, if you like, before I actually get onto the food, which is the fourth shift there. So the first one is reset, which is all about life load. And I think one of the reasons why women struggle so much at menopause with our generation of women versus our mothers is because of the amount of stress that we're dealing with. We're often at the top of our career. We often have chosen to have children much later. So we've got young children in the house, or dare I say it, the joys of teenagers. (laughs) We're often dealing with the wills falling off our parents. We're dealing with loss. But also these huge kind of biochemical changes that our male counterparts just do not have to deal with on top of everything else. So for me, the first element is about stress. Everyone knows what stress is, but nobody knows what it is. And it affects us so very differently. But it is about helping to support your body deal with what life throws at you better. So for me, I want women to feel in control and then we can make decisions as we feel fit. But it is about feeling in control. I think a lot of the things with menopause is that we just don't feel like ourselves anymore. And I, I want us to feel like ourselves because our late 40s and 50s should be the best years of our life where we're powering through. Why shouldn't we change our career or get to the top of our career? My understanding really of stress is that it actually can be a positive force if we can adapt to it. And I think for a lot of us, that adaptation with those shifts in hormones are just too great.
0: So what do you recommend we do to combat the stress?
1: So within the reset section, there are three kind of subparts, if you like. I always say to my patients, and in my book, I can't do anything about our external stress, and I always apologise for that. (laughs) But as I say, I can help the body deal with it better. So the first port of call is helping to actually understand this kind of concept Of the hurried women's syndrome, where we look after everyone else except ourselves. And it is about prioritizing just a little bit of self-care and I think for a lot of women self-care becomes a big trigger point where we're like oh my god I can't I can't function properly let alone trying to like shoehorn self-care in it just becomes another thing on the to-do list. So for me it's about helping to support to put ourselves further up that to-do list and what I often talk about is prioritizing the first hour of our day and that even if the rest of the day goes completely out the window that sort of just even that self-care for the first hour of the day will have a ripple effect. And for me, it is about waking up and not having a cup of tea and coffee on waking because that immediately shunts us into stress and I do talk about caffeine a little bit within this stress low because it does put us into fight or flight. We're already stressed. Drinking lots of caffeine, that's only going to make it worse. And then having a protein-rich breakfast, things like eggs any which way, avocado. The joys of hybrid working is that we can, when we're working at home, grill some tomatoes and some mushrooms and have it with some avocado on toast. Or high-protein granola. You know, I'm a real fan of bircher. Um, yeah. But with added protein, so added ground linseed, etc. So having a protein-rich breakfast, and I always say if you don't feel hungry on waking, which ideally I want you to, I want everyone to wake up feeling refreshed and hungry, is to eat your evening meal a little early and that should help you feel hungry on waking. And then to enjoy your caffeine with your breakfast. So instead of having caffeine on waking, have a hot water and lemon or just a warm water. We're dehydrated when we wake up. And then having your caffeine with breakfast means that that sort of just minimises the
0: effect of caffeine on our cortisol and on our stress hormone. So you're not saying we've all got to give up caffeine. It's just about timing it with food and keeping it to the beginning of the day. Absolutely. I'm not the caffeine police. <laughs> and I do
1: think that, you know, if I went decaf about five or six years ago. I think decaf has come a long way. But I appreciate that, you know, for a lot of us, caffeine is a very enjoyable part of our day. And also, you know, we are exhausted. So I do get that need for an added lift. But having it with food just lessens the effect. I think for a lot of us as well, if we're working in a busy office, we often have coffee and tea without even thinking about it. So it's about being mindful full of it. yeah. And then my final thing is the protein-rich breakfast, hot water on waking, caffeine only with breakfast, and then having your supplements. So having your supplements out by your kettle and having your supplements. And then for the rest of the day, doesn't matter what happens. But even that first hour of the day, if you do those things, if you add those in, you will feel so much better. You will have more energy. You won't dip mid-morning. And then within that sort of reset, there's also blood sugar balancing. And this is a massive biochemical thing that happens that increases stress hormone. So what I'm doing really is, as I say, I'm I'm not decreasing your cortisol externally, but I'm decreasing your need for cortisol internally. Right. This is a massive issue. For most of my patients, they suffer with feeling hangry, feeling shaky, feeling faint, getting that I need to eat now, feeling a different person after eating. These are all signs of lows in blood sugar. And every time you get that low in blood sugar, that triggers. Yeah. The release of stress hormone.
0: Is the low in blood sugar caused by eating too much sugar? So you have a sort of spike and then a, a crash. Yes, yeah, so it's called
1: reactive hypoglycemia. So if you have tea and toast, for example, for breakfast, caffeine also affects your blood sugar. It mobilizes stored glucose from your liver and your muscles to zoom around the body because the body thinks it needs to do something physical and, you know, that fight or flight mode. And that's why if we have too much caffeine, we can feel quite jangly. But yeah, if you have tea and toast, your blood sugar goes really high and then you get that crash which usually happens around sort of mid-morning and because the brain does not like too high blood sugar and it doesn't like too low it stimulates this stress cascade of cortisol adrenaline noradrenaline to bring the blood sugar back up again the thing is as well is that when we have those lows of blood sugar this can exacerbate mood, irritability, OCD, anger, mood swings. So much of that is to do with lows in blood sugar. But also it can trigger hot sweats. So those kind of hot flushes, one of the biggest triggers of hot flushes is sugar because adrenaline and noradrenaline are vasodilatory. So by helping support your blood sugar, by putting more protein and more beneficial fats into your diet, I always liken sugar as pouring petrol onto our energy fire. The flames burn really bright and then they burn really small, whereas protein and fats is like putting coal on the fire. The flames don't burn as bright, but they burn for longer. You get that drip feed of energy and that increased heat increases satiety. I think from so many of
0: us we're not anchoring our hunger anymore because we're having so many carbohydrates. We all know that you do the thing of you have tea and toast or coffee and toast and then by ten thirty, you think oh god I feel awful so then you go for a sugary snack and another coffee to lift you back up and as you're saying that's the worst possible thing you can do. You have these blood sugar
1: roller coasters that then are there the whole day. If you don't catch it in the morning that will be your whole day of those highs and lows and i think for most of us we are on that roller coaster and every time you have those lows that's terribly depleting of things like vitamin c which is really needed for energy production that's why we're whacked you know that's why i always say a coffee or tea only lasts you until the next one
0: i've gone decaf as well with my coffee a few years ago and i used to do two big mugs with like three espressos in it and then fill it up with water and milk. I woke up feeling great one Saturday morning and then I had like halfway through my second one, I had a massive headache and I just thought, this is crazy. I felt fine and now this is just because of the caffeine. And as you say, decaf has really come on a long way. It's still the pleasure of a coffee without the massive... Absolutely. And if you go out any good barista, you get a
1: very enjoyable cup of coffee. You know, you still have a tiny little bit of caffeine coming from the decaf, but it still is pleasurable, the smell, the taste. You know, I really enjoy my decaf. I think things have, have moved on nicely there. But then my third point within the stress section about how to basically reduce the body's need for so much stress hormone is inflammation and keeping inflammation down because cortisol is our anti-inflammatory hormone along with our stress hormone. So people that are dealing with really chronic inflammatory conditions like, for example, Fibromyalgia, you know, they often don't sleep well because their cortisol is so high because it's being kicked out the whole time for uh, the anti inflammatory. So, menopause is actually classified now in the research as an inflammatory event in a woman's life because estrogen is involved with the immune system it has an anti-inflammatory role which is why for some women before even perimenopause they would often get sort of aches and pains just before their periods which is when oestrogen is at its lowest frozen shoulder and things like that can be exacerbated by menopause because of those dips in oestrogen and oestrogen is anabolic it's building things up it makes us feel strong but as i say we feel even in the first two weeks of our cycle for those of us still cycling normally or those of us pre-menopause, we would feel very strong and, and good, less likely to catch stuff. Whereas in the latter part of our cycle, as estrogen is at its lowest, our immune function isn't as optimal, um, which is why women have far more likely to get autoimmune conditions because our immune system just does not work the same as men's. It changes throughout the month.
0: Wow. See, I had no idea that oestrogen was to do with your immune system as well.
1: Well, that's why women were only put on clinical trials as late as the 1990s. And still, to this day, it's two thirds men and a third women because our cycles mean that we don't respond to drugs in the same way, like as a constant, like men. So it's very much harder to do your gold standard double blind placebo controlled
0: trials like that because we're annoying. Oh, because it depends where the woman is in the cycle, Oh, you see, I I had no idea that that was another factor as to why women aren't on all these clinical trials. Your second shift is cleanse. What do you mean by that? So it's really referring to the digestive system,
1: the stomach, the small intestine, the liver is obviously part of the digestive system. It digests fats and then the gut. So, you know, your diet could be the best, most optimum diet in the world. But if you're not digesting it, it's a complete waste of time. So as a nutritional therapist, my first port of call working with clients is usually to sort out the digestive system, which often can, as we age, can get depleted. Also, if we're dealing with high amounts of stress, stress down-regulates the digestive system. For example, IBS is the physical manifestation of stress. Because the body prioritizes survival over everything else and it can speed up your colon and cause an evacuation. So yes, it's all about optimizing stomach acid, You know, making sure that we are breaking down food properly so that it enters the gut in the right format. Because if it doesn't, it then doesn't stimulate the next part of digestion. There's lots of bits in the book there about how to optimize your digestive function. But then Going on to the liver, everything to do with our hormones is about the liver. The liver is a massive multitasker, like we are, and it doesn't have any pain receptors on it. So it's quite hard to tell if it's in need of some TLC. But quite often, alcohol can be quite self-limiting at menopause.
0: You know, that sensitivity to alcohol often manifests. That is a sign that the, the liver could use some support. I've had to cut down, if not pretty much stop my alcohol, just because the hangovers were just getting worse and worse. And so that is something else that affects us massively during our menopause, isn't it? And it has the knock-on effect of affecting our sleep and things like that. I'm not here to tell anyone to stop doing anything. And I'm all about
1: rewiring the body so that it doesn't need it so much. And that's why I don't subscribe to dieting or anything because as soon as you strip out sugar, you just want to eat it and eat it and eat it. So it's about sort of crowding out those cravings, rewiring so that your reward system isn't craving things and that you get that sort of deep-seated sense of contentment. For me, my biggest point here is understanding that alcohol gives the liver more work to do and the liver is already really busy, continues to be busy. I mean, it will always be busy, but it's really about enjoying more sort of higher quality alcohol, but less of it which often when you're drinking more high quality alcohol, it's more expensive. So that sort of stops you from drinking more of it as well. And just being mindful of it, again, back to that tea and coffee, so much of what we do is just so passive because our world is so turbocharged and everything's fast and we never spend any time eating we often eat on the go or it's the same with drinking we're not even mindful of a beautiful glass of rose or champagne or whatever so it's about just slowing everything down having water always on the table if you're going out for drinks eating when you're drinking as well really helps but you know other sort of signs for liver are things like feeling really nauseous Feeling really bilious. You know, the word bilious comes from the word bile, which is made in the liver to digest fats. Some of us can get increases in cholesterol at this time because estrogen is also involved with our lipids. So, supporting our liver health, and there is a cleanse, a very gentle cleanse in the book, will help no end on your sleep, on your hot flushes. It will help to start a little bit of long-term weight loss. The liver is where we convert all our T4 into T3 thyroid hormones. It's really important for our metabolic rate, etc., etc. So there's lots of things in the book about supporting the liver and then the gut. So, you know, we are what we eat. We are what we digest. We are what we absorb into ourselves. We are what we detoxify from the liver and we are what we eliminate through the gut. The importance of the gut really as part of this kind of cleanse is because it's our second brain.
0: Yeah, now this fascinated me. It's where two-thirds of our immune system is housed Mm -hmm. and the largest number of nerve endings outside the central nervous system. So it is basically another brain. It is. Because you think of it as just, I think of it as just a sort of tube (laughs) (laughs) where everything goes down and that's all it does. That's extraordinary that it has so many nerve endings and it's such a vital part. Yeah, absolutely. It's the enteric nervous system,
1: which is this kind of peripheral nervous system that outside of the brain and the spinal column and it's connected to the brain by the vagus nerve which is this massive kind of trunk nerve which actually most of the communication is coming from the gut to the brain so the brain is like listening so that thing of trust your gut is real yeah and that gut instinct you know we have language that is related to that biochemistry butterflies in the stomach well actually our stomach is kind of mid-chest really what we mean is our gut and that's when constipation for example can be very very much kind of connected to anxiety, worrying about things. We hold so much emotion in our gut. When we have menopause, quite a lot of the time we are getting psychological symptoms. The focus for me is about helping to support the gut to support the brain. So low mood, for example, can be caused because estrogen is linked to the serotonin, which is our happiness neurochemical. And 90% of our serotonin is made in the gut. A lot of other neurochemicals are created in the gut as well. Sorting out the gut really helps to sort out things like foggy head, for example, and that sort of brain fog. But that low mood is also linked to inflammation. Going back to the reset part, the inflammation, depression is now seen as an inflammatory condition. And this is before perimenopause. You know, this is aside from yeah. perimenopause because, you know, 20,000 years ago, we would have withdrawn from the tribe because we would have had inflammation, i.e. from a cut or some kind of illness, so as not to spread it around. Whereas now we don't have those kinds of inflammation, but we get inflammation from our diet and from our lifestyle. Uh, from stress, from processed foods, from sugar, from, you know, gluten is now classified as an inflammatory food, and we withdraw. So we have these depressive-like symptoms of withdrawal because of that inflammation.
0: What can we do to help our guts then? You were talking about the importance of breakfast, so actually this idea of fasting and don't eat until 11 o'clock, you talk about mini-fasting.
1: Yeah, so a lot of people say they're on the 16-8, but that just means that they're missing breakfast and drinking loads of tea and coffee, which is basically Meaning that they're hanging off their hormones. And for me, I want to fuel your brain and your body at the start of the day, which is when we need the energy. We don't need the energy at the end of the day. And if you are actually doing the 16 8 fast, I'd much rather people have a brunch and a late lunch and then go to bed hungry. Do you see what I mean? Because that's when we need the energy,
0: not a back-ended towards the end of the day. And we all do it the other way around because it's easier because then you're asleep for most of it, aren't you? Yeah. Rather than going to bed hungry. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. And we go to bed just having eaten. and It minimizes the need for caffeine when you've fueled your brain. And that's why that first hour of the day really helps. It's a very interesting exercise. It might be tricky initially, but you will feel the effects. With the gut, my easiest rule of thumb is just to increase your plants and working to 30 then to 40 then to 50 unique plants and by plants I mean things like herbs and spices and fruit and veg pulses legumes nuts and seeds non-gluten grains and actually if you cook a lot of curries and tagines and making pestos and things like that you will easily reach thirty to forty, and I think when you cook from scratch, you know, twice a day. If I'm making my birch or whatever, you know, I'm putting lots of different things in, then you will achieve that, and your gut bacteria, they need to feed off the fiber that you feed them. And if you don't feed them enough fiber, they just don't grow. And then we have more putrefactive bacteria we get more bloating and we get constipation. You know, constipation affects our estrogen. You know, we need to be getting estrogen out of the body. And we always talk about estrogen at menopause not being very high, but we can get sort of a unopposed estrogen as progesterone is actually the first hormone that generally reduces at menopause because we're often not ovulating. Um, And if we don't ovulate, we'll still be producing estrogen, but not progesterone from the empty sac post ovulation, which is called the corpus luteum, which is why some of those psychological symptoms such as anxiety and insomnia start to manifest first, well before our cycles start to change, well before we get things like hot flushes, which is why I think a lot of women think that they're not in perimenopause because all we kind of associate with menopause is hot flushes or period changing.
0: Exactly. And for me, the perimenopause was all the psychological things. I mean, it's really fascinating listening to you. You just touched on there about the rest aspect. Your third shift is rest. So that thing of waking at two or three in the morning, that's what happened to me all the time, that sort of insomnia. And you were saying that's when the liver is functioning. Yeah, it's most active. So, is that a sign that your liver is in need of some help if you're waking regularly?
1: Well, certainly in Chinese traditional medicine there's a 24-hour body clock, which there's no double blind placebo controlled trial. Although there is now more research into what's called chrononutrition. It actually comes from the sort of the drug industry about when the liver is metabolising pharmaceuticals most efficiently. So there is more work into that. And as I say, there's no double-blind pursuer controlled trial, but it does kind of make sense to me that the body wouldn't be really active on all of its organs all at the same time. And between the hours of 1 and 3 is the liver time of detoxification. And quite often women are waking up between the hours of 1 and 3. And as I say, once you start to support your liver, you will sleep better. Quite often people get to sleep by drinking alcohol for example. But often that can really disrupt our sleep and can make us wake. If you're waking in the night, one of the biggest things to maybe put into place is having a protein-rich snack before bed. Because sometimes if you're waking in the night, that can be to do with a low in blood sugar, which is releasing cortisol. If you're waking up with hot sweats as well, you've got that vasodilatory noradrenaline and adrenaline bringing the blood sugar back up and causing a night sweat. So that blood sugar balancing should help with your sleep. But it's also about supporting your circadian rhythm, which is our 24-hour sleep-wake cycle. And I think for most of us, we spend half the day desperately trying to wake ourselves up and the other half of the day desperately trying to calm ourselves down, ready for sleep. And, you know, I always say that tomorrow starts today. Everything that we're putting in our mouths and Our our environment will affect how well we sleep, which has affects how well we wake up tomorrow. Because if we wake up feeling exhausted, we are not going to want to eat broccoli. We are going to want to eat refined carbohydrates and caffeine to get us through. And then that creates that catch twenty two.
0: And also, if you wake up slightly hungover, yeah, then I find I make bad food choices. Totally. Whenever you've had too much booze, so it is (laughs) that vicious cycle of it makes you hungover, therefore you start eating badly, and therefore you feel awful. Then you think I'll have a drink at the end of the day, and it, it. it just sort of perpetuates. Absolutely,
1: absolutely. Which is why alcohol, if you reduce alcohol, it's a really great way to lose weight. It's an easy way. So for me, the biggest effects on our circadian rhythm are light, food, environment. And the problem is at menopause is that that can make it even worse because progesterone, which often goes first, is linked to a very calming neurochemical called GABA. And GABA is our anti-anxiety. That's why progesterone is often called the everything will be okay hormone. GABA helps us get into a light stage of sleep. So light is really important at the start of the day to wake up and get the morning light, to go outside, to force the body to release serotonin and to actually realise, okay, this is daytime melatonin the dracula hormone that comes out at night will only come out if your cortisol is low so if you've got lots of screens if you're scrolling that sort of blue light from the screen is going through your retina stimulating adrenaline production and forcing the body to think okay it's still daytime so then melatonin doesn't get released but then we have on top of that this sort of progesterone issue with GABA and You know, this is when warming foods, grounding foods, you know, glycine-rich foods, so your bone broth, for example, glycine is is very calming. It helps to support GABA. And then B6, which helps to support progesterone and zinc and magnesium. They're all really, really important for progesterone, but also to help us with sleep. So magnesium is nature's tranquilizer. And for most of my clients, we are low in magnesium. So, you know, if you get twitchy leg at night, if if you suffer with lots of migraines, if you've got lots of period cramping, if you've traditionally had you know low energy, these are all signs of lows in magnesium. So having epsom salt baths, magnesium through the skin is absorbed. that will help you sleep longer. But there's also some clever supplements out there. So things like L-thionine and lemon balm help to support GABA. They help to cre- keep GABA from stopping being broken down to help with sleep. And, and it's also really calming if you're feeling
0: lots of anxiety as well. And so that brings us on to your final shift, which is eating So focusing on micronutrients. So I think we should spend quite a lot of time talking about food because listening to that, I just wanted to go, well, what food, what can I be taking that is rich in magnesium? What should I be eating at the end of the day that will aid my sleep? My biggest things about food is that my industry is often
1: sort of brushed aside of like, oh, just eat a balanced diet. And, you know, what does that mean anyway? And for me, it's about therapeutic foods and it is adding more food in which crowds out the need for all the rubbish foods. Although your body can deal with 20% rubbish if 80% is nutrient dense. So it's, it's this concept of nutrient dense foods. And for most of my clients, they are having their most nutrient dense meal at the end of the day. Quite often, they've just had cereal, they've had a sort of sad sandwich, as I like to call it at lunch, and then they will have you know that nutrient dense meal at the end of the day. So I lived a long time in Asia. I love the fact that in Asia, And in most parts of the world, they will be eating the same for breakfast, lunch and dinner. If you were to eat your evening meal for breakfast, how different you would feel. If we ate a full English breakfast like we used to, how differently would we feel? We are so ill and we have so much chronic disease. And it's not because of the fat, it's because of the sugar, the endemic of diabetes and still massive cardiovascular issues, heart attacks, etc. It's the inflammation, it's the sugar and the obesity as well. So for me, it is about helping to support this change from energy-dense to nutrient-dense foods. So for breakfast, for example, to have that eggs any which way, you know, eggs were so demonized, you know, eggs hugely important they have things like choline in which is needed for acetylcholine indicated with alzheimer's acetylcholine helps with memory choline is incredibly important for our liver and also the sulfur in the eggs for sulfation for detoxification so you know as i said the avocados avocados great source of magnesium good source of fat will help anchor your hunger and then you've got your wonderful antioxidant rich tomatoes lycopene in the tomatoes really good for our eyes very antioxidant rich then we have our mushrooms mushrooms grown under uv light is one of the best sources of vitamin d anyway so we've got all of that for our breakfast high protein granola stay away from the any granolas with dried fruit in they're basically sugar lumps make your own if you can and then to have full fat you're good to have ground linseed which is a phytoestrogen, which I'll talk about in a minute, which is really important for us, but that's a great source of protein. Put that onto your bircher or onto your granola. And then for lunch, I'm a big fan of leftover lunches. So if you're making a tray bake in the evening, you know, making more for lunch putting some leaves with it. But if I don't have any leftovers, then I will always have in the fridge a jar of olives. I'll have some hummus. I'll have things like sauerkraut. I'll whack some falafels in there. Half a tin of sardines. I mean, sardines are so cheap. Obviously, if we're not in the office, that is. Um, If we're at home.
0: (laughs) Yeah, the red onion and sardine combo is not great in the office, is it?
1: (laughs) Yeah. Um, But even some leftover rice and some leaves and tomatoes, spring onions are always got in. And then you have this wonderful kind of Buddha bowl where there's lots of different things going on this massive protein rich, omega-3 rich, interesting bowl as opposed to kind of the limp salads that I see on some people's food diaries when they're trying to lose weight. So it is about eating more at lunch. The sad sandwich will not keep you going and then you'll get that three o'clock slump where you need more tea, more biscuits, etc.
0: And it's about eating more, but eating more of the right things. So that's what I loved about it. It wasn't a restrictive diet as we know the word diet. It's actually a diet as the word should be used as in meaning everything that we eat.
1: Yeah. I I mean, I eat loads. (laughs) I love food and I think food should be celebration. And, you know, the last thing we want to do when we're overwhelmed is to suddenly go without. And I feel very passionately about the diet industry and how it sets women up to fail. The words like the sinful or whatever, it's just... It doesn't take into account the hormonal changes that are going on at menopause with our blood sugar, with our lipids. That weight around the middle is not going to shift if we start reducing calories. It's actually going to hold on to it even more because it's a stress. You know, that cortisol, you know that worry waste it's called is the weight around the middle. So we have to deal with the stress, the life load, and then trick the body into losing it by flooding the body with, with micronutrients.
0: And you touched on there. I started to have in my morning protein shake ground flaxseed. Is that the same as linseed? No, they're the same. Flaxseed is basically the
1: American word and linseed is traditionally the English word. But yeah, they're exactly the same. And I'm a big fan of ground linseed. The whole seeds are roughage, you know, they have a good effect with our guts. But it's the ground linseed that is the biggest source of lignans. And this is a family of phytoestrogens. And phytoestrogens are a very important part of the naturopathic therapeutic food shopping list or for anyone even on HRT is because the phytoestrogens, they're not estrogen, but they have a very mild estrogenic effect on the body. And they can really help for people like myself that aren't on HRT, help to sort of blunt the roller coasters of highs and lows of estrogen as our body gets used to lower levels post-menopause. But they can also be really helpful if you have those kind of unopposed estrogen kind of symptoms like the heavy periods, clotting, fibroids, endometriosis and some breast cancers are estrogen sensitive. The estrogen can be prolific proliferative, it can actually grow things. It's not always a great thing, you know, it is obviously great, but there can be certain metabolites of oestrogen that are more proliferative and give these kind of less helpful symptoms like heightened PMS, water retention, breast tenderness, all kind of heightened oestrogen symptoms. So they can be really good at helping to sort of block those, block them on the receptor sites. So it works in two ways. And they're
0: also a good source of protein.
1: Absolutely. So the ground linseed, great source of protein, but also a great source of soluble fiber so if you have a little glass of water with it or if you're having it in your smoothie um, it um, bulks up and massages the gut on the way down so it's really good for constipation.
0: And I buy the whole seeds and then I just use my husband's coffee grinder to grind them. Perfect. Unbeknownst to him he doesn't know. (laughs) And what I keep seeing on things like Instagram is turmeric and ginger But together, it's lauded as this sort of superfood. Is there something that happens? I want to use you to bust all these myths that keep being thrown at me. At this stage of our lives, I think women are preyed on their vulnerability. You know, you think, oh, God, should I be doing this? And I need to be doing that. And as you say, the supplement and wellness industry is such a massive multinational billion dollar industry now that it's difficult to pick apart what's true and what's utter. Rubbish, for want of a better word.
1: (laughs) Ginger and turmeric are both potent anti-inflammatories. So if you're suffering with any kind of aches and pains or, you know, even if you have arthritis or osteoarthritis, these are hugely important foods. But the combination together would just mean that it gives a more kind of potent antioxidant and anti-inflammatory effect there's no kind of secret ingredient it's not that it becomes this
0: extraordinary thing when they're
1: together it does make me laugh in the west you know where that sort of turmeric latte was the big thing wasn't it a couple of years ago and you have to have the black pepper on to optimize the turmeric absorption which you know in ayurvedic medicine they've been making curries like that for five thousand years and in the West, we
0: do it and it costs you £5.50 or something. And it's in a milky drink as well. Yeah, so that's the thing. We should all be eating curries. We should be eating way more spices in our curries. Yeah. And cinnamon as well. There's a big thing about cinnamon being fat burning. Is that true? Well, I think it's slightly... um overemphasized. <laughs> out of context.
1: The advantage of cinnamon is that it actually helps support insulin sensitivity. It's been mostly researched and very well researched on helping to quash too much insulin and helping our cells maintain that insulin sensitivity so it is really important i have cinnamon in my bircher every morning i I use oat milk to soak it for 10 minutes while i'm chopping up a little bit of fruit i put grated ginger in there for the anti-inflammatories and then i put my two tablespoons of ground linseed or my lignans but also for my protein and then i also put other kind of superfoods in cracked sea buckthorn powder for example is something that is great for lubrication for example if you're feeling really dry or if you have vaginal dryness, the properties of sea buckthorn, they're only grown in very, very arid places. So I've been lucky enough to travel to Kashmir and up into the Himalayas and sea buckthorn were growing everywhere. And these are places that have never seen any rain. And the little berries give you a huge amount of antioxidant-rich vitamin C, but they're very lubricating because it's very dry. And I love that about nature, that plants do give
0: us what we need. And can you buy that as a powder then? It's quite bitter. I mean, I've, I've only seen it on cookery programmes, actually, where those chefs go, oh, I've made sea buckthorn something and people sort of face pucker and go, oh, that's interesting. But is it bitter in a powder form? It's a bit like grapefruit, I would say. Oh, right, OK.
1: What I would like about that bitter taste is that we don't taste much bitter anymore. Whereas we used to, didn't we? We used to have things like gooseberries all over the place as well. We've stopped eating bitter and we've stopped eating sour. So I like
0: it for that as well, that sort of taste. You've just brought me on to sour. So I've started apple cider vinegar. So if I have that as my morning, mm-hmm. I don't do lemon and water. I do a little shot of apple cider vinegar in a mug of water. Is that, is that
1: beneficial? Well, it is a very old-fashioned naturopathic remedy to help wake up the digestive system. I don't have it myself. I don't find it very palatable. But again, just make sure that you're having the mother, you know, that you're getting the mother form. The vinegar helps to stimulate our stomach acid and lower down. I think it even has effects on our our
0: liver as well. So is it better for you or is it just a taste thing of whether you do lemon and water or apple cider vinegar? Well,
1: the lemon water is really just to hydrate you. It feels really nice. The lemon gives you a little bit of vitamin C, but that's about it. And it's really just something to have instead of a cup of tea or coffee, because as I say, we are dehydrated when we wake up. So for me, I'm personally not a fan, but I can see why people do have it. And again, it's a nice naturopathic remedy. Yeah, I I don't like the taste more than anything.
0: (laughs) Well, there's now one that actually has turmeric and black pepper in it and honey. Of course it does. Oh, of course it does. (laughs) That's actually pretty good because I was having to put honey into it to, you know, mask the complete face crumpling sourness of it in the early morning. But actually, I don't need to put honey in this one. So I think that's good. And getting back to all the supplements. Now, would you subscribe to the fact that we should get our vitamins from whole foods rather than supplements?
1: Well, Absolutely, food first, and largely because there are a couple of reasons, basically. Food is information. It gives us lots of different things at the same time. So, for an example, a tin of sardines will be giving you great amounts of omega 3. It will be giving you lots of protein. It'll be giving you things like B vitamins in there, some vitamin E, whereas an omega 3 supplement will just be giving you the omega 3, probably a little bit of vitamin E, keep the um, omega 3 in check. The supplement has that in. So, it's a completely different thing. And, you know, as the saying goes, there's no such thing as a vitamin C tree. With food, you get so many different things all at the same time and the beauty is is that you don't need to worry about taking too much of it whereas you do have to be more aware of not taking too many vitamins
0: uh, and minerals although no one's as far as i know has ever died of a vitamin overdose <laughs> <laughs> so they should be supplements in the truest sense of the word they should supplement your already vitamin rich diet absolutely and what would you recommend? And I do take supplements. Right. I'm not quite on the sort of the Barbara Cartland style.
1: I think she took about 65. <laughs> but, you know, my diet is optimum or, you know, it's, it's good. And as I say, I do have some rubbish in my diet as well. You're a human. And that's fine. You know, seriously, never feel guilty. Always see food as celebration and as love, etc., But I do think we are so far removed from our natural rhythms. For many of us, we haven't listened to our body at all. And that's why I like working with women at menopause because suddenly women are thinking, oh, actually, I do need to look after myself because the wheels are falling off. And if I don't do something now, it's just going to get worse and worse, which is wonderful that we are starting to think about our bodies. Whereas we've quashed the last 440 periods that we have on average in our lifetime, we haven't been thinking about our cycle at all. We've been living this male pattern of life that means every day, is exactly the same and we exercise exactly the same as opposed to exercising across the cycle depending on where we're at and with food for example if you're really really stressed your adrenals that are these little glands that sit on top of the kidneys that kick out stress hormone need more vitamin C and we don't store vitamin C very well so when I know that I've got a really busy week coming on I take more vitamin C and it really helps me but I do think for most of us a good high potency multi even if you just have that and actually if you have a high potency one that means you don't have to take additional vitamin D or additional B bits or additional zinc or whatever, because you've got it all in one. And it doesn't mean that it becomes more sort of cost
0: efficient. When you say a high potency, what brands would you recommend? Yeah. So
1: my kind of hero brands, you know, I don't get paid by any of these companies. (laughs) Very (laughs) conscious of always keeping very neutral because I need to be able to say if something's good or not. Yeah, The trusted brands that I use in my practice are brands such as Biocare, Viridian, Bionutri, Vivo, they do some nice probiotics. Bear biology do some really good high-potency fish oil. I really like Cytoplan, They're very naturopathic. They're partnered with Waleda, which I think is a great company. Wild Nutrition, so they're food state supplements. So the potency won't look as high, but the absorbability is very good. And also um, Higher Nature, they're a really good price point. They're slightly cheaper than the other ones. But even companies like Biotics and Allergy Research, they're all companies that have really smart formulas that get me excited as a nutritionist on a, quite a geeky level because they're working on lots of different systems. I can see that they've got things in there to help the liver and, and to help detoxification and also to help support estrogen balancing and progesterone balancing. Things are in the right format as well, so please look on your supplement list. Always look at the ingredients as opposed to the nutrients. Things like calcium carbonate, for example, is basically chalk and it's really hard to digest it. To, it sort of sucks up all your stomach acid and calcium calcium citrate is a much more bioavailable form. Things like magnesium oxide and zinc oxide are very cheap forms of those minerals and are very low bioavailability. So magnesium sulfate or citrate or glycinate. Magnesium glycinate actually is a really nice one for anxiety because, like I said before, glycine is very calming and very anti-anxiety.
0: And should we be taking a probiotic as well? Should that be separate to our multivitamin? So with the multivitamin, I would then advise an omega-3 supplement. If you're
1: not getting your two to three oily fish a week, it's really great if you have very dry. Dry skin, if you have cracked heels, if you have bubbles on the backs of the arms, it's really good for our mental well being. You know, 60% of our brain is fat. And then a probiotic. So I do take a probiotic daily. But even if you don't want to take it daily, I have it as part of my immune system toolkit. So whenever I start to feel a bit, you know, run down, it really helps because two thirds of your immune system is in the gut. And probiotics have, you know, there were some really well-researched companies doing probiotics. BioCult is a really good low-cost product. I like their products. So you can get that in your local supermarket. But looking at things like Actimel and, you know, those little pots of sugar, basically, three sugar lumps and some weird strain of probiotic that no one's heard of. So, you know, we do want to be going for the Lactobacillus, the Bifidobacterium. We don't want to be going for, you know, the Raminos. And these are all really well-researched strains. So just stay away from, you know, the
0: dairy industry basically making more cash that way. (laughs) Just to finish, I want to quickly talk about your retreats, because I think they look utterly fabulous. <laughs> I will obviously put a link in the show notes. Are they all just day retreats? I used to do a lot of retreats before COVID, weekenders actually,
1: and then I have changed it to day retreats because I think we're all so time starved and I think they work really well because it is a day of learning. Everyone obviously gets a copy of my book and it doesn't actually matter if my words kind of go over you because you have got the book to refer back to. But um, the book actually is, is a book that I wrote during COVID and that is based on my retreats. That's how I would talk through everything. So it was actually a really lovely process writing the book because it was already in my head but the day involves talking about all these stages in much more detail and also we always have a beautiful plant-based lunch not because I am vegan but because I want you to experience the joy of plant-based cooking and and how great that makes you feel and how light that makes you feel afterwards and energized. and then I'm always talking about troubleshooting specific symptoms and actually in the book you know I have a lot of sort of supplement protocols based on symptoms that people can dip in and out and then I talk a lot about supplements and then everyone gets a wonderful goodie bag from some of my hero brands because I always think we don't get enough presents in our life (laughs) party bags so that's a really important part for it for me from you know the wonderful products that gift them to me so it's a really lovely day of kind of knowledge building but also community and I think a circle of women is a really strong and supportive force and I always learn lots of stuff from the days as well Um, but it's always a really kind of joyful way to to get women together and to discuss what's been going on and it's a very empowering day for all of
0: us that's amazing i might have to book myself on one you have been superb karen i can't thank you enough that was just a wealth of information and all of it achievable you've just put a smile on my face So thank you so much for coming and talking to me
1: thanks so much India.
0: What I love about Karen's approach is that tiny shifts in our behaviour can make such a difference to our general well-being and our menopausal symptoms. Whether you're on HRT or not, we all need more Karen in our lives. If you want to read her book, which I highly recommend, I've put the details in the show notes. Next time I'm talking eye health with optometrist Harps Kular about how fluctuating hormones affect our eyes. She's seen a huge rise in the number of menopausal women coming to her with dry eye, which surprisingly isn't what you'd think. And how her own struggles with perimenopause and not being taken seriously by her GP has allowed her to really connect with her patients and give them the space to be heard about their menopausal symptoms. If you want to be more orca, head to bemoreorcapod.co.uk. For all the latest on what's coming up, I've cherry-picked articles to keep you informed so you don't have to sift through the news. And become a member. Tell me what matters to you and what questions you want answering. Help shape the pod and help other women just like you, so we never have to feel like we're going it alone again. And if you've liked this episode, please subscribe as it helps with those pesky algorithms and lets others find us and become part of our pod. And follow me at b.more.orca for my no-filter menopause diary.